I have a book coming out uh, this spring, and uh, this is the epigraph. Um, it's a short excerpt from Antoine de Saint Exupéry's uh, *The Little Prince*. I'll read it in uh, Russian and then in English. Uh, uh, I haven't kept enough of my uh, high school French to try it in the original. Что это делаешь? спросил маленький принц. Пью, мрачно ответил пьяница. Зачем? Чтобы забыть. О чем забыть? спросил маленький принц. Ему стало жаль пьяницу. Хочу забыть, что мне совестно, признался пьяница и повесил голову. «А чего тебе совестно?» – спросил маленький принц. Ему очень хотелось помочь пья... бедняге. «Совестно пить!» – объяснил пьяница. И больше от него нельзя было добиться ни слова. И маленький принц отправился дальше, растерянный, недоумевающий. «Да, без сомнения...» Взрослый, очень-очень странный народ, думал он, продолжая путь. Why are you drinking? the little prince asked. In order to forget, replied the drunkard. To forget what? inquired the little prince, who was already feeling sorry for him. To forget that I'm ashamed, the drunkard confessed, hanging his head. Ashamed of what? asked the little prince, who wanted to help him. Ashamed of drinking, concluded the drunkard, withdrawing into total silence. And the little prince went away, puzzled. Grown-ups really are very, very odd, he said to himself as he continued his journey. Uh, chapter 57 of Whales in Paint, in Teeth, in Wood, in Sheet Iron, in Stone, in Mountains, in Stars. On Tower Hill, as you go down to the London docks, you may have seen a crippled beggar, or kedger, as the sailors say, holding a painted board before him, representing the tragic scene in which he lost his leg. There are three whales and three boats. In one of the boats, presumed to contain the missing leg in all its original integrity, is being crunched by the jaws of the foremost whale. Any time these ten years, they tell me, has that man held up that picture and exhibited that stump to an incredulous world. But the time of his justification has now come. His three whales are as good whales as were ever published in Wapping, at any rate and a stump as unquestionable a stump as any you will find in the western clearings. But, through, though forever mounted on that stump, never a stump uh, speech does the poor whaleman make. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but with downcast eyes, stands ruefully contemplating his own amputation.
Throughout the Pacific, and also in Nantucket and New Bedford and Sag Harbor, you will come across lively sketches of whales in whaling scenes, graven by fishermen themselves on sperm whale teeth or uh, ladies' busks wrought out of right whale bone and other scrimshander articles, as the whalemen call the numerous little ingenious contrivances they elaborately carve out of the rough material in their hours of ocean leisure. Some of them have little boxes of dentistical-looking implements specially intended for the scrimshandering business. But, in general, they toil with their jackknives alone. And with that almost omnipotent tool of the sailor, they will turn you out anything you please in the way of a mariner's fancy. Long exile from Christendom and civilization inevitably restores a man to that condition in which God placed him, i.e., what is called savagery. Your true whale hunter is as much a savage as an Iroquois. I myself am a savage, owning no allegiance but to the king of the cannibals and ready at any moment to rebel against him. Now, one of the peculiar characteristics of the savage in his domestic hours is his wonderful patience of industry. An ancient Hawaiian war club or spear paddle in its full multiplicity and elaboration of carving is as great a trophy of human perseverance as a Latin lexicon. For, with but a bit of broken seashell or a shark's tooth, that miraculous intricacy of wooden network has been achieved, and it has cost steady years of steady application. As with the Hawaiian savage, so with the white sailor savage. With the same marvelous patience and with the same single shark's tooth of this one poor jackknife, Uh, He will carve you a bit of bone sculpture, not quite as workmanlike, but as close-packed in its maziness of design as the Greek uh, savage. Achilles' shield, and full of barbaric spirit and suggestiveness, as the prince of that fine old Dutch savage, Albert Durer. Wooden whales or whales cut in profile out of the small dark slabs of the noble South Sea warwood are frequently met with the forecastles of American whalers. Some of them are done with much accuracy. At some old gable-roofed country houses, you will see brass whales hung by the tail for knockers to the roadside door. When the porter is sleepy, the anvil-headed whale would be best. (laughs) But these knocking whales are seldom remarkable as faithful essays. On the spires of some old-fashioned churches, you will see sheet iron whales placed there for weathercocks. But they are so elevated, and besides that are uh, to all intents and purposes so labeled with hands-off, you cannot examine them closely enough to decide upon their merit. In bony, ribby regions of the earth, where at the base of high broken cliff masses of rock lie strewn in fantastic groupings upon the plain, you will often discover images as of the petrified forms of the Leviathan partly merged in grass, which of a windy day breaks against them in a surf of green surges. 
Then, again, in mountainous countries where the traveler is continually girdled by amphitheatrical heights, here and there, from some lucky point of view, you will catch passing glimpses of the profiles of whales defined along the undulating ridges. But you must be a thorough whaleman to see these sights. And not only that, but if you wish to return to such a site again, you must sure and take the exact intersecting latitude and longitude of your first standpoint. Else, so chance-like are such observations of the hills, your precise previous standpoint would require a laborious rediscovery. Like the Solomon Islands, which still remain incognita, the once high roughed Mendana trod them, and old Figueroa chronicled them. Nor, when expandingly lifted by your subject, can you fail to trace out great whales in the starry heavens, and boats in pursuit of them. And when long filled with thoughts of war, the eastern nations saw armies locked in battle among the clouds. Thus at the north have I chased Leviathan round and round the pole, with the revolutions of the bright points that first defined him to me. And beneath the effulgent Antarctic skies, I have boarded the Argo Navis and joined the chase against the starry Cetus far beyond uh, the utmost stretch of Hydrus and the flying fish. With the frigate's anchors for my bridle bits and fasces of harpoons for spurs, would I could mount that whale and leap the topmost skies to see whether the fabled heavens with all their countless tents really lie encamped beyond my mortal sight. Serena had become nocturnal. The 4.30ish earthquake hour, her comforting noon. She flipped through the expensive photo album she had filled with images from National Geographic. A legless beggar boy flogged by his manager on the streets of Cairo. A Vietnamese girl feeding mush to catfishes through a trap door in the living room of her floating house. The x-ray of a pelican that had eaten a gopher the gopher having burrowed out through the larynx in its death throes. In her mind, she called these images curiosities, but wasn't at all sure how she'd become their curator. She told Farfina, a night nurse, Donnie insistent, was a given, not to disturb her, then slid open the heavy glass door and lit a cigarette. Serena held a slice of angel food cake in her palm, and it shivered there while she watched for the floating snake-bite eyes of the raccoons. They were late tonight. The old woman stared at the dark hill abutting the backyard like the hump of a beast she'd soon ride off on. Where would it take her? To the lush coast of Raccoon Cove where hedgehog traffic cops with Gucci scarves stood under sugar street lamps. She brought the chair closer to the darkness. At her 50th high school reunion, there were three people she wanted to see. Two old flames and the girl who stole them away. She called the Alumni Association and found out the trio was planning to attend. Serena knew how good she looked, 
and wanted to rub their noses in it, haul them down by their scalps to lick the salt off her cunt, if she could. She hadn't seen them since the Big 25th, but the dull, chatty alumni newsletter kept everyone au courant. Victor ran a bank and had a successful bypass. Glynis was a widow, remarried, 1988, to a manufacturer. Ted had 14 grandkids and started a trust with the $11 million lottery he'd won in their names. And what of Serena? Divorced from a Hollywood producer, her son a powerful agent, a senior VP at ICM. Alum notes ran a precancerous photo Serena had sent. She of the twinkling eyes in the Skasi chiffon. She of the I shit on you mouth like some centimillionaires out of W. The reunion looked like a collection of fat old talking candles. The banquet ended just after ten. As the pallbearers of the student body returned to their rooms, Serena heard music blaring from a sidebar ballroom. She wanted to investigate. Victor and his wife went up to bed, beat. Serena had to pull Ted by the elbow. Glenn and Hubby indulgently followed. Sad to say, but wandering like that with Ted on her arm was the most fun yet. The music grew louder and the air seemed to change, supercharged by the molecules of the young. A prom. Serena wanted to crash, but the others backed off, laughing gray-skinned dumbasses. Serena made Ted buy her a drink in the bar while they cut up old times. After Ted walked her to the room and kissed her with his dead fish mouth, she went back down and tipsily danced with the kids. They didn't know what to make of it, but liked her energy. She grew lightheaded and a leg felt numb. Serena thought she was having a stroke, but it was only the carousing and champagne. She sat at a table, pale, dizzy, staring at souvenirs not of her time then cried all the way to the elevator, like hosing vomit off a sidewalk. By the time the doors sealed her in and the car began its skyward rush, she knew her life had ended. A few days after my journey to the polo grounds, I got a job. I would like to believe that my cheering for Owen had rendered my countenance more amenable to prospective employers, but this was not the case. Exhausted by the long months of my defeat, I combed my hair, had my suit cleaned, walked into the personnel department of the New York Central Railroad, and told the man I would take anything he had to offer. He took me at my word, giving me anything. A job as clerk trainee in the passenger department at a pittance. But my luck was beginning to change, and in a few weeks I had an impossibly splendid job in that company's public relations department. Robert R. Young, the powder-haired, tassel-toed, dapper little financier out of Texas, 
had just won control of the company in that now famous proxy war and was, as his first order of business, clearing the Deadwood, 20,000 employees, from the Central's payroll. In all the time I was with the railroad, this onslaught on the feather betters seemed to be his only policy. He was more than anything, I think, a phrase maker. A hog can cross country without changing trains, but you can't. And because he seemed to have no clear-cut policy, we gentlemen in public relations, as near as I could determine, were expected to do little more than sit in our cubicles, pick our noses, clean our fingernails, watch young brush away the scarabs, and wait for reporters to telephone with questions we wouldn't even if we knew the answers be permitted to answer. Which is as good a definition of public relations as any. Working under such conditions, I needed no time at all to decide that one ought to exercise such duties and style. I bought a couple tweed suits, a few delicately patterned bow ties, and a pair of sincere black oxfords. Putting a lot of impressive-looking and forged documents into my inbox, I closed the door to my glass cage, and for the next few months read cover to cover every issue of Time, Newsweek, Sports Illustrated, Harper's, The Atlantic, and The New Yorker, which still left time for Saul Bellow's The Adventures of Augie March, a volume I read till it came unbound and pages started dropping out and cluttering up the inbox. In public relations, there were only three of us who had been retained from the pre-Young days. On Young's enthronement, most of the men, including the boss, had been shown the door for having worked too stridently to prevent Young's coronation. For doing their jobs, in other words. And shortly thereafter, some of his own people began to seep into the vacated cubicles. Into the one next to mine moved a raven-haired Radcliffe girl with a superb behind, a pair of legs that must have held their own on the hockey fields of Cambridge, and an authoritative, though pleasing, voice. It was her job to answer Young's lunatic mail. These letters were from people who believed, quite properly, that $8 million was much too much for any one man, and who, as a result, had come up with some rather novel and touching ways of rectifying the situation. Perhaps dear, drunken, and beloved old Uncle Casper was expiring from a minuscule tumor of the brain, and all they want, wanted was $2,000 search on his dues. Others wanted a million or so for a Great Dane hospital, a home for retired pederasts, or backing for an all-day musical, featuring a thousand sequent chorus girls and songs from an unclaimed lyricist named August Sugarwood, the very same whose soon-to-be-immortalized signature could be, could be seen bringing up the bottom of the letter. The girl was good. She knew her business. For two days, I picked my nose and listened to her dictate before introducing myself, and by then, I had a case of her. Dear Mrs. Kerparshall, thank you for your letter of October 20th requesting a million dollars to help construct your planned sanatorium for Great Danes. Let me say at the outset that 
though I'm unable to give you the funds for this good cause. There is no one, I think, who is more fond of canines than I, and especially of your particular choice, the noble-hearted Dane. Without going too deeply into the reasons for my refusal, I hope you can appreciate that I'm, I am each liter year literally inundated with financial requests for one good cause and, and another. For that reason, I have long made it my practice to give to more general charities, community chests, etc., in the hope that what I am able to give will find a more equitable distribution among the needy. In conclusion, and if it doesn't seem too presumptuous, I might offer a word of advice. Don't you think you might have better luck by enlarging your plans to envision a sanatorium whose doors would be open to other breeds? The Chow, the Boxer, the Chihuahua, the Red Bone Hound, perhaps even a mongrel or two. I wonder, really, if there will be enough Great Danes for the ample and lavish space you so obviously have in mind. Yours sincerely, Sybil Radcliffe, for Robert R. Young. That letter won me over, and Miss Radcliffe and I had a shy, kissless, and quite unsettling romance for a few weeks subsequent to my introducing myself. We sat in cozy Italian restaurants for three-hour lunches, nibbling delicately uh, on breadsticks and smiling demurely at each other. I talked about Hemingway, she about Young, and that, in a nutshell, was the terrible division of our outlooks. She believed Young to be a great man, caught up in matters out of the reach of other mortals, where, if I believed him to be anything, and I scarcely looked on him as, hu as human, it was as a pipsqueak parvenu out of the super-state gone quite power-loony. Oh, she knew Hemingway, better than I did, but his world was as unreal to her as Young's was palpable. Her alarming backside and luxurious thighs were always virginally enwrapped in black wool and gray tweed, and that was the way she wanted it. I always envisioned that grand thing sheathed in the Tyrolese corduroy of mountain hikers, and I had this vision of following it, so sheathed, up that pale precipice to the iridescent land where, once attained and in a tremble of exhaustion and anticipation, I would decorduroy, depant, and deflower her among the flora, the world's colors coming to focus in the soft raven down of her thingamajig. I wanted to risk great happiness, but I never got the chance. Our romance ended one bleak night in Louise Tavern in the village. I had taken her there to show her my dream tavern, the place to which I fled every night to dream my dreams of fame. She said that she neither she liked neither it nor the people there. I became upset, gave her money for a cab and watched her walk away from me, wondering if I shouldn't run after her. But I never did. I was hurt and furious that she hadn't taken to Louise. At that time, Louise was one of the places that made my existence bearable.